Hello and welcome to Film Disruptors and the final episode in Season 1. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show which brings you the game changers in film, whether that's in storytelling, finance, production design. And I'm delighted to welcome Fabian Regal to the show, who is founder and artistic director of The Phenomenon, which is Secret Cinema the organization which has pioneered an entirely new approach, a new business model and a new movement around the very old process of showing movies. I talked to Fabian recently from his London office, shortly after the curtain closed on the latest production, and we talked about the secret cinema journey over the last 10 years, about how the company is ramping up its work in distribution, its plans internationally, and how it's bringing its unique approach to audience building and world building to the space of production. So, as I mentioned, this is the final episode in Season 1, but if you go to the home of Film Disruptors, that's www alexstoltz.com you can access all 12 episodes of the season and find out more about all of the guests you can also subscribe here to our newsletter and get in touch i'd love to hear from you particularly who or what areas you would like to see covered in season two so that just leaves me to say thank you for listening throughout the season and today and now i'm going to hand you over to fabian regal Fabian, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to have you. As you know, I've been trying to uh, pin you down for an interview for some time because I think when I thought about film disruptors, your name was at the top of the list because I think what you've built with Secret Cinema is is phenomenal. And it's extremely disruptive in the sense that, you know, you've done something completely new in this space and created a very successful business model out of it. But I, I'm really pleased to catch up now because I know you've just finished Moulin Rouge. How does it feel now the show is over? Uh, a real mixture of um, sadness, really, in some ways, but also excitement for the future that, um, you know, this was an extraordinarily ambitious production um, over four months. And, um, you know, we... we I'm excited in many ways because I feel like we've we've hit a new level with uh, the format of Secret Cinema, and um, I think Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge was a was a film that, that lent itself very well to, to to the format. So, no, I'm excited about where we go next, and um, and very happy that the whole thing uh, went as well as it did. Yeah, are you able to share any numbers? In terms of you know your gross box office or admissions, um, I mean I think it's all kind of a little bit out there because we're mm. now uh, Secret Cinema like, is, is goes through rent track and mm. Um, mm. what I know that it's just done um, under a third. I think it's just over f- maybe f- just under four and a half million. Wow! Um, I'm not the money's the money man, <laughs> but it's I think quite staggering considering a 16 year old film has done just under four and a half million, which is close to a third of what the original release did. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that uh, idea that you're bringing these films, which, sure, you know, they're going to have a life on 
TV and digital now, but to bring them back into a theatrical experience and then to create so much revenue, uh, Fox Fox must love you, right? Um, well, I, you know, Fox, we've had a good relationship with over the years. We really built up, a, you know, I think that they... They, they saw in Secret Cinema something that could really support the release of not only new films, but also create a new revenue uh, line for classic and cult old films. And um, we first worked with them with uh, Prometheus. We've worked on several films with them. We did Brazil and uh, Miller's Crossing, which was what were their titles. But also um, we did Prometheus, which is when we released Prometheus as a Secret Cinema some years ago. And um, and then Grand Budapest Hotel. So no, I think they were very happy, that, and you know they came. They all came to the world we created, and they seemed to really enjoy it. I think I saw Chris Green wearing a tutu one night, didn't she? Um, <laughs> I think shows that he enjoyed it. Um, maybe it wasn't a tutu, but it was some some sort of dress. But no, I think they really enjoyed it, and I think they um, we're talking to them about you know the future, and and I, th- I think they're pretty excited about it. Mm. Is it true that Baz Luhrmann came to Moulin Rouge? Yeah, Baz came. It was pretty interesting to see, to have to walk around the, 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 the world that we created of his film um, and almost sort of, uh, you know, talking through what we've created. Um, and I think he was quite taken back. And, you know, one of the things he said when he came was, we created this film 15, 16 years ago. But, you know, what you've created here is, 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 is another world. You know, it's a world, you know, that is inspired by the film, but it, it doesn't it isn't sit directly inside the film. And I think he was quite taken back by the scale of it and taken back by the, I guess, the idea of how could you actually make a film knowing that the film could, could be released in this way or could be framed in this mm. way. Right. Well, I'd love to to come on to that because I know you've you've had some thoughts about that side of things and producing producing films. So we must must talk about that uh, later. But I, I also I, I recently had Rebecca O'Brien on the show, uh, who obviously is Ken Loach's producer, and she talks a lot about I Daniel Blake and the release. And the distribution of I Daniel Blake being much more like a political campaign rather than a distribution, a conventional distribution piece. And I was yeah, I was struck by that you you've done some screenings recently, just prior to the election, <laughs> tying in with the political campaign of of the film uh, regionally. And I just want yeah, just, just interested about how that came about and and you know how how that went. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, I think we are, with every production, with every different um, secret cinema we do, we always think about the, you know, the, the themes and the story and the truth behind the film and what it resonates in the audience emotionally, what it does, what it inspires them. And I think any great cinema is something that moves you, shakes you, and you come out of the cinema completely, you know, inspired and in and, 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 and deep thought about the film you've just seen. Because so... Daniel, you know, I, Daniel Blake, I saw in Cannes the year before and it, and it struck a real chord. And I think like many people, it was, I found it a very emotional experience and I found it, I also became very angry by its message. Not that it wasn't something that I was aware of what was happening, but the way that Ken Loach told that story in such a simple way, just, you know, resonated. And I think what I'm very interested in, in is the idea that, that, that films, 
you know, our stories, but they are also messages and they're messages in which to uh, communicate an idea that perhaps could uh, engage and influence society or could could help people behave differently about certain things, whether it's uh, the environment with an inconvenient truth, um, whether it's the Battle of Algiers, a film that was shown to the Senate back in the 60s, you know, one of the most powerful films about terrorism, which was a message which hasn't been heeded, uh, you know, incredibly, um, all these years later. And um, so for I, Daniel Blake, um, it, when I we approached Becca to see if Ken might come and introduce it and to do a screening of it in the weeks uh, running up to the election, to engage young people to come and see the film and to encourage youth, the, the, you know, the, the, the youth to vote. Um, so we actually did a whole campaign, a takeover of Secret Cinema, um, which would essentially give young people uh, the opportunity to see the film at the Troxy where we staged it with, um, for, for, for only £3.50 a ticket. Um, with all other tickets at £10. And we had, you know, organised in less than five days from the moment that Ken Loach accepted to come and introduce it. Um, we organised two screenings simultaneously in London Newcastle, bringing close to 3,500 people and, and, and did a huge online campaign. So that's how it kind of came about. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Fabian Regal of Secret Cinema. If you want to stay in touch with all the latest Film Disruptors news, you can find me on Twitter at AlexStoltz1. And in this next section, I ask Fabian about the origins of Secret Cinema. Well, originally, I think, you know, I, I was always very passionate about films as a, as a kid growing up, and... Um, I actually was uh, living in Morocco. My dad was posted out there and we, I think I was about 10. It was uh, 10 or 11 years old. And um, I, um, there was a cinema, there was like a little local cinema called the Dowleys, which was a sort of, you know, old flea pit, dusty uh, little Moroccan cinema. Um, but it was the only one in, you know, in, in the area. And I walked down to it and I, and I bought a ticket to what was showing without really knowing what it was. And I went into the cinema and it was um, Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone's, you know, epic masterpiece, um, of which the protagonist, you know, one of the main characters, a character called Noodles, set in the sort of, you know, prohibition world of America, was, you know, 11 years old or tw- just older than that. And so I became very much, I suddenly realised, I mean, not that you don't realise as a child, but the idea as a child when you go to the cinema is that the, there's no difference between what you're seeing on the screen and, you know, you, you, the fiction and reality blur and you, you, you literally step into the screen. I think you're, you're more open to the story because you're, you're more childlike, you're more, you know, you, you see more wonder in the world as it were. And I think as I grew older, I was always became, you know, was always very passionate about films. I, I love going to the cinema. I love seeing films, but I always felt the experience and the environment in which films were shown um, didn't match up to the magic on the screen. And I think that I started going to music festivals, going to um, free parties when I was a lot younger, and this sort of merger of how you could actually create uh, an experience around a film that was mysterious, that was magical, that was romantic, that, that sort of got, went back to the days of the old picture palaces and that where you had an organist, where you had where people dressed up, when there was music, where there was food. And I think 
everything's become too commodified. You know, I don't, I don't, I think part of the business has just stepped one step too far into this idea of automation, you know, escalators taking you up shiny stairs, um, into a place where you get your ticket from a machine on the wall, um, where you walk through a kind of multiplex that feels a bit like a ferry going to, uh, Calais. And, 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 and that's a sort of, you know, I, I, I'm not judging. I think there has to be a place for, for, for mass distribution of films, for 10 screen, 15 screen multiplexes. But I feel also there has to be the balance of the kind of the more, I guess the, the more underground and the more romantic concept of cinema. Um, and so that's really where it all came about. And what was the first secret cinema? First secret cinema was uh, Paranoid Park, Gus Van Sant's film, and um, you know, a secret about a kid in a skate community. Um, and so the whole film was about a secret, and the whole film was set in the skate world. Um, and so we created this skate park underneath London Bridge, um, putting a couple of ramps in some of these arches. And the audience were, you know, it's quite, I remember it now, it was, uh, you know, just, it was actually, we're coming up to our 10th year. It was uh, 400 people and we sent them down to London Bridge and essentially they were, they became, you know, part of this skating community and they were all under suspicion of having killed um, this character. And um, we showed the film, it was terrible sound, if I remember rightly, because the, the, it was, we did it in a series of arches. So the sound sort of bellowed out through these sort of underground arches. Um, but the atmosphere and the experience and, you know, it was, we were very happy with it for the first one. And, you know, it was basically, you know, secret cinema, um, will launch on this date. We can't tell you the title and we can't tell you, uh, the location at this stage and we can't really tell you anything. Um, and then for them to actually come, and not only did they come, but it sold out very quickly. Um, was a real testament, I think, to to the idea that the audience were looking for something different. And how how important has social been in terms of building up that relationship with the audience? So I think it's you know as we as as you know originally Secret Cinema started in two thousand and seven, but but we originally started with um, Future Shorts, which was. Um, you know, the idea of creating um, uh, a network of, of, of many film festivals, the idea of doing screenings in bars and music festivals. And, and that all started in 2003. And that was really the beginning of the internet, kind of. I mean, as I remember at the beginning of when I started using it more. And then Future Cinema in 2005. So by the time that, 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 that Secret Cinema was 2007, it was really digital culture was really growing. Um, and I think that's a big part. And I think it's interesting because there's this part of why people need to come to, you know, why people I think enjoy secret cinema and, uh, uh, you know, are hungry for, for the idea of the, these mysterious experiences was due to the explosion of the internet it, as well as, you know, I think promising because people enjoyed the mystery, enjoyed the, the, the unpredictability, how unexpected it was. And, but at the same time we were using social media in order to build the community. And I think it, 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 but actually even today, 
the the way that we built audiences was that we had clipboards and I had, you know, um, part of my uh, team uh, at the show would, would go and collect email addresses at the end of the evening. And that, you know, every single time we would pick every single person, it was my rule, every single person that comes in need their email address. And it was the beginning when email was becoming, you know, really used. And we, that, that, that's very much, even today, our mailing list is, 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 is how we've built the world, the mailing list and word of mouth. Um, but, but, but social media has, has played a massive part as we've, as we've grown, not only in promoting and creating an ability to gather, um, but also to be able to actually look at how we can include social channels to lay out the story uh, that we're telling and, and allow the audience to become the characters inside the experiences. Well, that's so many interesting things to, to pull out of that. Um, the fact that in this age where of Netflix and video on demand or films on demand that you, but you create these scarce experiences, which are so powerful and so in demand, I think is really powerful. Um, but it's also, I was struck by when you attend a secret cinema event, the experience starts almost as soon as you buy your ticket, right? You start getting these messages, whether it's from uh, Mr. Dilla from Moulin Rouge or the Rebellion uh, and Star Wars, and you start that experience before. Uh, and it's, I think that's wonderful, really. I think, you know, with each secret cinema, we, we, we work very hard to build... Uh, a story, um, you know, uh, from the moment that you buy a ticket, essentially you get sent an email that takes you to a secret website where we've created um, a, a way of, of, of giving you a character, giving you a, a narrative a biography within the world. So, for example, the last um, secret cinema, Moulin Rouge, we um, worked with the... Um, the town hall of Paris to get the names of everyone that lived in Montmartre at that time. So we actually got close to a thousand different characters. Um, plus we also then had the characters from the film um, and we integrated everything together and then had four different writers write a thousand different biographies and then connect up all of those thousand different characters according to um, different occupations, whether they were married, whether they were lovers, um, whether they had absinthe problems, whether they um, enjoyed um, visiting the Moulin Rouge late at night. And it, so it was all these, it, we created this story and the audience became part of that story and that story played out every single night. And then they got sent to this website where there was a newspaper, a sort of an art journal, and they would see their characters playing out in the media and they so suddenly they realized they were part of this other world and then we use social media instagram and other things to essentially play out that story so by the time that they arrived uh at canning town which we said was um on the outskirts of Montmartre, and they arrived at our site where they arrived through the the french metropolitan uh station uh, entrance um, they were inside and they were engaged into the story. Um, and that's a massive part of how secret cinema works is the preparation before they arrive. Um, if they don't, if they're not inside the world and they don't believe the world, 
um, then it's, you know, it's like a child. You have to believe the story to become part of the story. Huh. And, and it's a massive part of what we do. Fascinating. Fabian, looking back over the last 10 years, what have, what have been the highs and the lows of Secret Cinema? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's quite a few uh, ups and downs. No, I think, you know, the, 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 I think the launching Secret Cinema, and which was really kind of a, quite a left-field idea, and the idea that audiences would buy tickets to an unknown film, or they would buy a ticket without knowing anything about what they're about to experience, and that working, and that really gaining people's imagination. I think that was a real high to know that this could work. And, the, you know, the real feeling behind, behind Secret Cinema originally was how can we build audiences um, for beautiful films? How can we take films and create something around them that's going to engage audiences to see things that they wouldn't normally see? And it's like when a friend, you know, I got dragged to the cinema to see Park Chan Wook's Old Boy, you know, and I and I hadn't I hadn't researched, I didn't know anything about it, and it was at the Curzon, and I remember I was blown away by the film, and I might not have gone and seen that Korean film if it hadn't been for a friend of mine who who, who took me there, and it, it I wanted to do that on a massive scale, which is if you can build uh, a massive community around a secret, then imagine what. Um, imagine what you could do and imagine what kind of films you could make and imagine how they could be played out. Um, so that, that was a real high and, and realizing that the concept and, 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 and the idea and the vision behind it worked. Well, you know, as we grew, it, the, the biggest challenge with Secret Cinema is how we've continued to push the boundaries and continue to push the expectations um, with each different production, you know, close to, I think, 46 productions in 10 years. That's on average, I don't, you know, since we launched, you know, we've not really stopped. We've just kept pushing the idea. And I think it has, what it has done is redefined the way that people think about experiencing film, um, but also the way that they experience culture, how different mediums are mixed into one, how audiences are becoming essentially transformed in uh, over the course of the evening um uh into another world and i think that it's been it's been it's been very tough to keep building the ambition with every show and i guess that's you know part of the i guess sacrifice that you made is that we've not stopped and it feels like 10 years later i was like holy i suddenly became 40 and i was like really it was confusing um, because I, it's almost like a been quite a, you know a manic journey, and I think there's a, you know when you're doing new things and when you're challenging the the ideas of things, it, you know there's always been a little bit of resistance, which is t completely natural. And if there wasn't, then probably we wouldn't have succeeded as much because, and I think it's always been a slightly I found it quite you know frustrating how long it's taken in some areas of the industry to see that this is really an answer and it's part of the answer of how we keep making, uh, g creating great audiences for great cinema. And, and that's been frustrating. Um, I think just, you know, the, 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 the back to the future was a very uh, difficult time when we weren't open, able to open on time. That was a very um, difficult time. And I think, you know, even though, we did open and it became, I think, you know, we had over 80,000 people attend and I think it became one of, one of the, 
I think Secret Cinema's real classics. I think people really, really enjoyed it. It was tough to convince, you know, uh, the authorities in many respects that that we could build an immersive world of a town and have 1950s cars driving around and um, DeLoreans driving around the audience at, you know, 88 miles an hour. It's actually was 38 miles an hour. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, it, it's tough, right? I mean... That 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 was the issue that it was a there was it was a health health like a health and safety was, kind of yeah it was a combination of different things I think it was that you know we were building a town and it was for eighty thousand people and the authorities who had you know perhaps we should have spoken to them earlier there's lots of different reasons it's very very complicated that and I've never really gone into it for the reason that I don't want to take the magic of how we do this but before we do a secret cinema it's pretty complicated in how you build to actually do a deal with a developer who owns a newspaper factory, which is 18 acres big um, to say that we're going to build a galaxy of star Wars in there. And we're going to create, you know, a sort of a desert town of Tatooine and there's going to be aliens walking around. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge of reality because normally what happens is these buildings get turned into uh, flats and accommodation, you know, they don't get turned into prisons, desert planets or mental hospitals. So, um, you know, I think it's always, it's always, a, it's always a different, you know, challenge to, to persuade, but, um, but back to the future was on the, on a piece of land outside right next to the Olympic park. And, and, um, it was just quite interesting. You know, the, the, the Olympics are about ambition and this was a very ambitious project and it was about, you know, bringing 80,000 people to, to essentially have a night of, of joy and fun. And it's been tough to do that, I think. And I think, uh, that, that, that some of the, some of the downs have been just, you know, the, the amount of resistance sometimes we get, but now I think we're in a really strong position that I feel that there's, we're building great relationships with, with, with local councils, with studios, with, with, who really see that what we're doing is positive and, and creating something hopeful and optimistic and also just you know it quite exciting you're listening to film disruptors and i'm in conversation with fabian regal of secret cinema if you want to stay in touch with all the film disruptors latest you can find me on twitter at alex Stoltz one in this section, Fabian reveals Secret Cinema's new plans to become more involved in the production process. And I start by asking him about the recent success of Secret Cinema's event around The Handmaiden's release. In terms of how I see the future of the way that you release, you talked about world building earlier, and I think very much that the way that things are happening now is that they're, especially with the young who really understand this, is that people are not thinking about films as, as one product or albums as one product or, um, you know, uh, fashion brands is just purely about the, the clothes. It's when you release an album, you release a world and you release a, a campaign, as it were, a kind of a story. And the audience subscribe to that story and they become part of that world. They become players within it. And I think the way that you release films is uh, that we have to find a way of engaging, you know, this very digitally 
um, obsessed society with 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 them ma- making them feel that they are the story, they're part of the story. And I think new films um, and um, the films that we've done like this, such as Searching for Sugar Man, which we did with Studio Canal, um, or The Imposter, which we did with Picture House, Amy, which we did with Altitude, of releasing the films earlier as experiences, which creates this enormous buzz around the title. Um, with you know, it creates the the, the 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 talkability around that title, and then pushes that film to the front of the sort of cultural conversation, um, and makes it relevant to the themes of the film. Um, I loved what Rebecca did with I Daniel Blake. They basically had, and 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 what what E One did with Rebecca with 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 I Daniel Blake. They released that film in schools and universities. They got people talking about it. They projected it. Um, you know, some of these, they did these projections of, of, of the film or, or, or this sort of stunt before that really engaged the audience. And people were talking about it before it was released. And that I find very exciting. Um, but so The Handmaiden came to us because we, I've been talking to Park Chan-wook. That sounds, that's, that's almost like we're friends. We, I had one conversation with him. Um, but I would love to have more um, with the translator. Uh, but he was a really lovely man and he got secret cinema straight away. I met him when he released, after he released old boy. And when I, when that, when I saw the handmaiden, I was, I, I felt that it was uh, a very, you know, beautiful and classic piece of cinema. And I think very few films are made like this, a, you know, a, a story of, 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 of London, Edwardian London, you know, told in Korea, um, you know, and, and, and translated into this Korean, sort of setting I thought was a really original and uh, amazing uh, uh, way of retelling the story and also it was a very erotic film and I think that erotic cinema perhaps is you know something that is important um, because it pushes the boundaries and I think it was a very beautiful film about two women falling in love and it was a very you know it was a thriller and it was a and, and, and it had this extraordinary um, narrative, you know, these three different stories that all intertwined. And we loved that. And so to release that as a secret cinema was great. I, yeah, I guess, I, guess, I guess on one level, the secret cinema experience acts as just a huge word of mouth and marketing component of a campaign. Yeah, I think so. And the way, you know, uh, what we're interested in and we're talking to a lot of distributors and studios and spend a lot of time, you know, in in Cannes, meeting with distributors and studios from around the world to illustrate the success that we've had with Secret Cinema, Um, you know, being in the top 10 of most box office charts for old films, but also that we did close to, I think, uh, 20% of the budget of um, Victoria last year. Um, Amy became the biggest documentary of that time. Um, the Imposter was the biggest documentary of that year, I, th- I believe also. Searching for Sugar Man became a massive cult hit. I mean, obviously it was an extraordinary film and we weren't just part of that, but what we're really interested in is the idea that you would release films, um, certain films, and create a kind of the experience of the film uh, two or three weeks before the release. And what, uh, and what do you uh, what do you say to people? I say people, probably meaning cinemas, who who <laughs> who are concerned that 
it's taking business away from cinemas. I mean, we've had this conversation, like, I mean, so many times, and I 100% understand their concerns. But what I would say to them is that they're wrong. Um, because, and actually, there's only a few exhibitors that still feel that. If you talk to Claire Bins at Picture House, and she'll see how much more money they took after we did Grand Budapest Hotel. And Grand Budapest Hotel became the... So what I feel about that is, if, if that's an argument, then look at the box office of all the films that we've done as a secret cinema. And, and what I would like the exhibitors to do is to come to us to talk about how we can strategically work together um, to create great pre-release experiences through secret cinema that can then lend themselves to perhaps doing some, maybe re like, like going into the lobbies of cinemas and doing something fun that's sort of connected a little bit to the, how we, how we bring these films to life. And I think, you know, it, it, first of all, when we do did the handmaiden, it was a secret. So people were buying a ticket without knowing that it was the handmaiden. So, it, it, in no way did it take away. I mean, you can't even suggest that because people were buying a secret ticket, so they didn't know what the film was. So how could that take away from other? So I would say that we would love to work more strategically with exhibitors. And I, I think actually pretty much all the exhibitors I think that I've met with recently really believe that actually this is a massive boost. It's a marketing boost that perhaps they would not have had in engaging audiences to go and see the film because we sell out quite a lot of our screenings and, and, and therefore people then get excited. They talk about it on social media and then more people will go to the cinema to see the film. And have you, uh, I mean, that's very, very clearly put, have, have you had any thoughts about how secret cinema can play a role in growing a wider appetite for film uh, or getting more people, for example, to see British film or more foreign language film? No, I think absolutely. I think we've been playing a role for some time. I think the the um, idea of film culture, how you can um, engage huge audiences that perhaps don't go to the cinema, whether it's young people of demographic, which is you know declining, I think, year on year, um, or how you can get people from thinking they can watch this on, you know, they have the choice of watching it. I don't think it's a a battle anymore with release windows. And I think there's a, a, you know, I'm saying lots of things here, but for me, it's about reimagining the experience of cinema, making the cinema something that you have to leave your iPad for, to go to the cinema and have an event, to feel more social, for it to feel less of a, of a, you know, of something that you can just, you know, book on your iPhone, but actually, you know, you become involved in the theme of it. You arrive, the manager of the cinema knows your name, you know, that they know about the film, they talk about the film passionately that, you know, so I think that the way that you get The Handmaiden to do over a million to the way that you get films like Victoria, which is such a beautiful film, but that should have done over a million. I mean, every single kid should have seen that film. Victoria is just a rock and roll, you know, amazing concept of this night in berlin and that should have been a massive youth ticket why wasn't it why didn't it become a million plus so i mean it did really well and it deserved but i felt it deserved to do better because that film would have been loved by young people but young people i don't think saw that film uh, as much as they should so no i think that there needs to be a way of creating new forms of marketing and i think a lot of distributors are doing incredibly 
amazing um, campaigns and you can see it evolving. And we, we have one answer of doing it and we want to work with different exhibitors and different distributors to think differently about it. And, you know, this is at the point of the films even being produced and made and commissioned that there needs to be a thought about the way that it's released. Um, and, 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 you know, there is an open door with discussing how, uh, we can help with that. But the way we think about it is we just kept on going, you know, not many people have knocked on our, our door, um, from certain areas of the industry, um, which I find surprising. Um, go on, elaborate if you, if you want. Well, no, I just would say that we often would apply for funding through the BFI and other bodies, Arts Council. And because Secret Cinema was always something that was between film, you know, I guess a, 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 between film, between a live gig, between a, a sort of mixture of different things, it never fitted in a category in which we would get the funding. And I think Alex Hewer, uh, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rumbled. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's you know I think you're right. I think that's the um, that's part of the, the the burden, isn't it, of doing of being uh, being an innovator, because it's you don't you don't tick the boxes um and it's and and then you know and then all of a sudden it's it's 10 years later and you've built up this you know massive business and everyone's sort of like oh yeah you know of course it's you know of course that's that's you know that's how it works but you know you're it, right it doesn't fit in those boxes and i think you know to, to say that there's not going to be resistance that there, there should be and, and there must and i understand that um but um, I think that there has to be a body, an institute that also recognizes uh, the disruption that's going on and embraces it. Because essentially, you know, whether it's, you know, um, whether you look at what Secret Cinema's impact has done in terms of um, engaging audiences in film, I think it's something that, that, that's very positive and it's very hopeful and it's optimistic. Um, and I think that the, what I found difficult was, it's not that, that we didn't, you know, we never received any funding, but there's this perception in the industry that, and the business that secret cinema is a massive business. Secret cinema puts on three or four shows a year for 10 years. Um, and I think most folk who make films and create films who walk around, um, these abandoned warehouses that we've transformed into um, different worlds. They they can see that this is a this is a complicated and expensive exercise. So I think for ten years we've built this really out of passion and very much we are now looking to scale this and take it around the world. And we're proud to be a British company and organisation. And London being such an incredible city. Um, to allow these sorts of crazy ideas to, to become real. But we want to, we, we feel very passionately that we're all trying to do the same thing. I think that, that we all want beautiful films and thoughtful films that make you think, that make you dream, that shake you to get bigger audiences. And it feels that there's this sort of thing in the UK where people create success and then they just like close that success around them. And they don't necessarily connect to the wider community, which is maybe why we don't have, you know, we have all these American movies coming and, and, and 
these American movies coming to be shot here for tax purposes. And, uh, you know, there's an extraordinary uh, amount of incredible films being made in the UK. But there isn't necessarily, you know, uh, the, the greatest, uh, you know, collection of creatives. I mean, there's, there's an amazing amount of people working here. But a lot of them moved to L.A., um, and a lot, of, a lot of people move to the US and go and work in television and do these different things. I'm interested in the idea that the UK could create a new wave, a new, you know, like a, a rock and roll wave of cinema, of, of music, of immersive experiences, of all these different things all joined together, building something. Um, and um, so that's what we want to do. And um, yeah, that's what we want to do. Wow. Sounds cool, man. And uh, we're, I mean, we're running, we're, you know, running to the end of our time. So I, I and I want to be respectful of your time, Fabian. Um, yeah. But uh, just briefly, you've mentioned this idea of being more sort of involved in the creation uh, of of you know cinema uh, a couple of times. And I know you announced something in Cannes. T- tell me a, a little bit about, you know, briefly about what your thoughts are in that area yeah i think um so you know i started off as a producer i started making short films and and the idea really now is having uh you know our 10th year of secret cinema as you're uh taking part in a secret cinema experience essentially the film is uh is become a, a world all over you know around you and the idea i feel is as you know, we've had quite a few directors come to the show from Baz Luhrmann um, to, to, to many others um, and have met with various directors such as Chris Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, uh, Spike Johns, and had conversations about what if you were writing this script at the point of development that you're actually going to release this film as a building, that you're going to release this film somewhere between theatre and cinema, a new release window. How would you make that film? How would you create that film if the frame wasn't a cinema screen, but a building? And that building was full of characters from the film in which the audience became part of. So you're essentially writing the audience into the script at the, at the point you're writing the script. And so the way I see the future is that there could be an opportunity. Well, there is an opportunity because we're starting to develop ideas with directors um, to make films for secret cinema release. Um, So imagine if you were making One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest now, and essentially you cast the same actors in the film as in, in the show. And as you're watching the film in a mental hospital, Nurse Ratchet comes out of the screen and forces you to take medicine. That sounded really terrifying. Uh, (laughs) But but literally, there is no difference between the reality of what's on the screen and the reality around you. A fully uh, 360-degree world, um, I think that could be really exciting. And I think where theme parks are going is more immersive, where I think where... You know, if you look at just there's just the trend and feeling that I think people want to be more involved and without then you can start thinking about AI and virtual reality um, and then things get really confusing. So we won't do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that what's exciting is virtual reality, what we do, the sort of physical connection that allows people to connect socially uh, together. I think uh, during these days when we spend our lives on screens, um, 
mixing with technology um, and allowing filmmakers to think about cinema in a slightly different frame is really exciting. Very exciting indeed. And that leads me uh, very nicely just into my final question, which I ask all my guests, which is, Fabian, what would be your advice for an emerging storyteller? What, what advice would you give to that person? Well, I, I would say that, um, you know, I think stories are everywhere. And I think to the, the, the idea now of, of the kind of stories that are important to tell due to, I kind of, you know, the way the world is shaping, the way the narrative is being created by, you know, um, the trumps of this world, um, is I would very much ask that storytellers look at how they can disrupt the kind of slight dark narrative that exists um, and tell stories that are thoughtful, that are ambitious, that are about, you know, um, how we could live better in society. Um, but in terms of advice, I would say that, you know, what's really exciting right now is that the way that storytelling, uh, the way that the, 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 the platform for storytelling is evolving all the time. So I think there's so much opportunity to create new innovative ways of telling stories, whether you're doing it across film, music, art, theater, I think combining these different things and releasing the film as a podcast uh first and then it then transforms into um a series of short films online to then going to the cinema to see the film to then going to an experience i think to really think about it in a different way and i uh i think what's really exciting and hopeful is that everything is up for change everything and you can see it with politics media we've just been had the most extraordinary strange election situation um it feels like there's a narrative to be recreated. Um, and so I think writers and, and artists are the ones that are going to reimagine it. I would, I would encourage um, to look at new ways of actually writing the stories and, and how they're actually received. Wonderful. Fabian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Where do people find out more about you? Uh, you you're on Twitter? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm not the greatest user of Twitter and I'm trying to do much less social media because it sort of, um, yeah, it just takes over. Okay. Um, but, um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on, on Instagram and, um, I guess I'm on the internet, I yeah. guess we, as we all are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so see you on the internet. Okay. Uh, we'll take care. Best of luck with everything. More power to you. And thank you so much, Alex. And really appreciate your podcast. I think it's brilliant. So that marks the end of season one of Film Disruptors. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I have had making the show. Season two will launch later this year. And if you have any thoughts, suggestions about areas or people we should cover in future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can access all of season one's episodes information about our guests, show notes, links, etc. at alexstoltz.com. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and I look forward to seeing you again soon.